Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am glad you're here. I thought it would be interesting to provide a little information about how Supreme Court decisions happen, uh, some context for how that sausage is made so that people could maybe have more background um, or maybe try to fill in the blanks of the Supreme Court leak. You won't be able to fill in the blanks. Who knows? Um, we're all just guessing as to how that happened. But it is interesting to know uh, the process of how those decisions uh, come to be. And it's also interesting to think about what the world may look like if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And to that end, I have invited onto the podcast today, Professor Kent Greenfield. He is a professor of law at Boston College Law School. He's also a Dean's Distinguished Scholar there. He is a noted constitutional legal scholar, and he's also a former Supreme Court clerk. Look who I brought ya. Um, here I am with Professor Kent Greenfield. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Greenfield. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Tanya. So you are a former Supreme Court clerk. You clerked for now retired Justice Souter. Can you explain a little bit uh, of the process of drafting a Supreme Court opinion and how the opinions are ultimately finalized so people can have some context for how this leak might have happened? Sure, and thanks for asking. It's it's still one of the things that I'd, I have to pinch myself to come to terms with the fact that I was able to be in those walls, inside those rooms for a year uh, as, a, as a young lawyer. So here's how it works. The Supreme Court hears about 80 cases a year, and they start hearing them in October, and they usually the hearings last through April, and they schedule them you know, a couple of weeks a, a month, you know, a couple a day. And at the end of each um, argu oral argument, the justices will will meet in conference, not right after the argument, but you know, a couple of days after the argument, they'll they'll meet in conference, and it's a very very secret thing. No clerks are allowed inside, no secretaries are allowed inside. It's only the justices, and the justices sit around and discuss the cases that were argued in the you know the couple of days prior. That's the time that the first initial vote is usually taken. Uh, so they'll discuss it. The chief will will run a vote, and at the end of that discussion, it will become clear whether there's a majority of the court that will vote one way or the other. And then the majority, I'm sorry, the most senior justice in the majority will have the the, the responsibility of assigning the writing obligation, or the, the writing duty to one of the justices in that, uh, you know, in that coalition. So in this instance, it looks like, at least um, with regard to the the, the Dobbs opinion, it looks like there were five votes to overturn Roe. Clarence Thomas would have been the most senior justice in that five. It would have been uh, Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett. And so Thomas did not assign it to himself. So that's one surprise right away. He assigned it to uh, Justice Samuel Alito. So Alito uh, would have had that uh, assignment as of early December. Now, the, leak that, uh, the leaked opinion that was what came out early May, was dated uh, early February. So that makes some sense because it would have taken Alito about two months to draft the opinion. And what happens then is when there's a draft opinion that a justice has, is ready to circulate, the physical copies of the opinion, it's very old school, Tanya, it's, it's physical copies of the, of the opinion are hand-carried to the other 
uh, chambers of the other justices and then distribute it to the justices and then those justices can distribute it to the clerks that are working on the case. And so, you know, this may, I will say this may have changed since I was there, since I was there in the mid-90s. So, you know, the technology is different from, uh, from what it was then. But the, these physical copies, there aren't that many physical copies of these opinions, right? So that's one clue about how serious this was. It was somebody who had access to a physical copy of the draft opinion. And then once that draft opinion is, is out, then... Um, a number of things can happen depending on the nature of the opinion, the nature of the case. In this case, it's almost sure that there was a lead dissent assigned at the same time as the lead majority opinion, the opinion for the court back in December. And it may be the case, if, if the reporting is accurate, that uh, Chief Justice Roberts is also writing a concurrence. You would have a, a, an opinion for the court, a majority of the court written by Alito, a concurrence written by Chief Justice Roberts, and then a dissent or more than one dissent written by Breyer, Sotomayor, or Kagan. And those dissents and concurrences are probably being drafted at the same time, at least in, in framework. Then once the, the majority opinion is circulated, then the dissents and the concurrences can be circulated and be re, uh, in, in response to the, to the court's opinion, draft opinion. In this case, um, you probably would want, if you were a dis- writing a dissent or writing a concurrence, you wouldn't just release the concurrence or the dissent right away after the, the circulation of the majority opinion. You'd want to take the majority opinion, read it, digest it, and then write a portion of your own opinion in response to the majority opinion. And that may take a month, it may take six weeks. Now, there were, uh, the political reported uh, last week that a subsequent opinion has not yet been circulated. So that's, that was, that's again, something that's a little bit of a surprise to me because I would have thought that by now you would have had, two months after the, the, the draft circulated, some other series of other opinions, whether dissents or concurrences, being circulated um, by now too. But that, at least if Politico's reporting is correct, has is, is not yet occurred. So let me pause there just to make sure that I'm um, I'm sort of uh, I'm explaining it in ways that that you think are uh, it's interesting. No, you you are, and it's very helpful. And you're actually going to uh, you addressed what really is the elephant in the room because the opinion said draft. Does that mean it's final? Based on what you said, and based on what kind of I know about court workings, it's very likely that the end result is final. You may have. Uh, one justice or another writing separately to make a bigger point. But we should assume, it is a safe assumption, that Roe v. Wade is dead. Uh, Would you agree with that? I think that's a safe assumption uh, with a couple of caveats. The vote does not become final until at least five justices join the draft opinion. Again, when I was there, which was, you know, some time ago now, the Literally, how you would join an opinion, you would write a physical letter, you know, from David Souter, my boss. David Souter would write a letter to Justice Kennedy, for example, and say, Dear Tony, excellent opinion. Please join me. Signed, David. And that that physical letter would be transported from our chambers down the hall to Justice Kennedy's chambers. And once the Justice Kennedy or uh, whatever other justice received five such letters, then that uh, draft has the has the, the sort of the weight of a majority of the court. And until those five letters uh, are received, it's still a draft and doesn't have a, um, and doesn't count as majority. 
And there are instances in which a draft opinion is circulated and then uh, loses that fifth vote. There are some circumstances in which we can sort of guess uh, based on the language in the in the ultimately released opinions. I think the, the Obamacare opinion from 2012, I think probably uh, uh, had this happen where you had a, um, uh, it looks like Chief Justice Roberts probably changed his mind halfway through the drafting process and changed from uh, striking down the Obamacare completely um, to thinking that, well, maybe we can save it under the tax and spending clause. And the clue to that is that the, 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 the dissent in that case was a jointly authored dissent that uses like the first person plural, we. And dissents are always written in the first person singular, like I think this, and then other just will join. But that dissent was was jointly authored. And, and some theory has it that, that that was a portion of the original draft majority opinion. And that when Chief Justice Roberts changed his mind, the dissenters simply took, the, took a section of the previous draft, majority draft, and made it their dissent and put their names on it collectively. So that's that's possible that that could happen here. Let's imagine that we have a situation where you have uh, five votes taken in December at conference, unofficial votes, saying that uh, Roe should be overturned. Then Alito goes and writes his opinion. And then in the meantime, Chief, Chief Justice Roberts writes a concurrence saying, well, I think I'm going to uphold the, the, the Mississippi law at issue that restricts abortion to um, to, to 15 weeks uh, or before, but I'm not going to overturn Roe completely. And if Roberts could peel off one vote from Alito's opinion, Alito's opinion goes from being a five-vote opinion for the court to being a four-vote plurality that actually doesn't overturn Roe. That, that one vote could make a huge difference. And so if, if Roberts is trying to peel off um, Brett Kavanaugh, for example, or Amy Coney Barrett, I, I think Kavanaugh's probably more likely, then that if Roberts, if, and if Roberts were able to do that, then Roberts could uphold the restriction on abortion that, that's now in place in Mississippi, but not overturn Roe. And, and I think as an institutionalist, Roberts may prefer that. And until Kavanaugh writes that little letter to Alito, uh, Dear Sam, please join me, sign Brett, it's not official. So it could change. Now, if that's because of that possibility, now that helps us sort of uh, game or figure out or strategize or, or figure out uh, why or who might have leaked the draft opinion. And I'm really eager to hear what your, what your theory is, Tanya. Um, I think there's two possibilities. One is that it's a liberal clerk or a liberal justice who is trying to push Kavanaugh, or actually it could, it could be for one or two reasons. One is that it's, they're going to release the draft opinion to highlight the, this, uh, this change, this drastic change that's going to occur in the law and sort of um, and, and ramp up the, uh, the opposition, the public opposition, which we've already seen, right? We've seen protests at Justice Holmes. We've seen um, protests around the country last weekend. And maybe one could imagine that, that if, if you sort of rev up that, that opposition now, it would give Congress more of a chance to change, to institute or to codify Roe in federal law or, or some such. 
I don't think that's actually that likely. If I were a clerk of a dissenting justice, the last thing I would want is to have this circulated and maybe have some push toward a, a quicker release of the opinion. I heard someone opine about this, uh, a friend of mine, another lawyer, not a Supreme Court clerk, but uh, someone who described Supreme Court clerks, such as yourselves, as um, a pretty risk-averse group who got where they are because uh, they know how to follow the rules and generally play by them and play by them very well. I'm not throwing any shade here, um, but, you know, you're talking about a group of folks who aren't, you know, you didn't, you don't get a Supreme Court clerkship by uh, disrupting the apple cart. I'm not sure. Like, I don't have a good theory. And also, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I don't think that a justice cares. I mean, it's a lifetime appointment. You know, uh, what I'd like to know is whether or not you think that these hearings are a little bit of a sham, right? Because everybody's going to show up and say, well, I haven't made an opinion. You know, and you've even seen some nominees who have been shy about saying whether or not they'd enforce or they'd uphold Brown v. Board of Education. I mean, that was also uh, something that people were coy about. So, you know, if you are not a lawyer, right, and if you're not a part of this inside baseball group of folks who kind of watch these hearings and read these opinions, do they even matter anymore? Because there is no way, and I'll just put it out there, um, I do, I, I think that for uh, a, a pro-life judge who gets this appointment, overturning Roe is like a dream come true. And there is no way that somebody was not planning to do that. Uh, you know, with that, I, I just, I, I just don't buy it. I don't buy the notion that you show up, you tell some senators, oh no, I've never thought about it. And then, oh, I'm thinking about it for the first time. And let me overturn not just one, but two precedents. Because, you know, speak to that. We're not just talking about overturning Roe v. Wade. We're talking about overturning KCB Planned Parenthood, which came before the court just before I was in law school. So you have two Supreme Court cases which expressly affirmed a woman's right uh, to reproductive freedom. So that is kind of revolutionary, isn't it? I mean, I just asked you so many questions. Uh, so let's go, let's dig them apart. Are these hearings, are the hearings but a sham in your view? And how revolutionary? I mean, if this draft opinion stands, how revolutionary is it to overturn not just one precedent that's been uh, enforced for 50 years, but two, two, Roe and Casey? Yeah, Tanya, there's so much, so much there, and I'm eager to, uh, to unpack it. I, I do think, let, let's talk about the Roe and Casey stuff first. And I do, let me first say that I, I, I think your initial impression is correct, that it, I, would be, I would be very surprised if this draft opinion does not end up becoming the law. And if that's right, then what this court is poised to do is overturn 50 years of precedent that's been reaffirmed time after time um, uh, over those 50 years and on which millions of Americans have based their, their lives and their reproductive choices and their employment choices and their schooling choices and their, and their familial choices. And this will be the first time in American history that the Supreme Court will have gone backwards in terms of its definition of fundamental rights. To give you a sense of, of how longstanding this precedent is, I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, Roe was 73, Casey was 92. We are 
further away in time from Casey than Roe was from Brown. It's been a long time that these, that these cases have been on the books. And what's worse is that the other cases that many of us care about, uh, cases that, that protect sexual autonomy, uh, Lawrence v. Texas overturned rules against sodomy, uh, laws that would punish people for, for being who they are, the Obergefell decision that upheld the fundamental right to marry who you love. Those cases were also based on Roe and Casey in the sense that uh, you know these building blocks of fundamental rights, as I just got finished teaching introductory constitutional law this semester, and, and the story that you tell about these fundamental rights cases, it starts with the, the ability to decide where your kids go to school. or it, it's, it, Then it builds to your ability to not, um, your, the fundamental right not to be sterilized as, as punishment for a crime. Then it's about the ability to have access to contraceptives. And then it's about the ability to have abortion. Then it's about the ability to to uh, not be put in jail for having sex. Then it's, then it's about the ability to to marry somebody of the, of the same sex. Um, and those these things are building blocks. So to take away the building block of Roe makes the rest of the edifice much, much less secure. So I do think that, uh, and I agree with you, that this is, a, this is a big change. And you have to understand the leak in the context of that big change. I mean, this leak is unprecedented. And I don't, uh, and I don't want to be mis, um, misunderstood to say that the leak. You know, I'm such a court insider that the leak is, is such a big deal. But it's a big deal because because it it reveals what must be going on inside the court, uh, like a a, a fight, uh, a battle that's of, of a generational Im- implication, uh, and there must be blood uh, being being poured down these hallways, you know, uh, between the justice and among the justices trying to figure, uh, figure out what the, what the outcome of this case will be. Well, it's so as the, you said that the, there's an issue of institutionalism at play. Um, perhaps Chief Justice Roberts doesn't want to overturn Roe because then he can preserve the institution. But from your view, uh, and you're a professor, uh, you engage with young people who are starting to engage with the law. Do people view the Supreme Court as a legitimate, objective institution? I mean, look, when I was in law school, um, we all had our politics one way or another. Some people were like, this justice is always going to go this way. This justice is my hero. But I will say um, that, just speaking personally, there was a sense that you know, there, the law would rule out. Chief Justice Roberts may have been appointed by, uh, you know, a president who perhaps didn't see social issues in the same way that I did, but Chief Justice Roberts was the deciding, uh, the deciding vote that saved Obamacare and, uh, you know, uh, protected the right to marry uh, and gave everyone the right to marry. So, I was inclined to more surprises. You know, I'm used to thinking of the court as something, as an institution that might go either way. I don't know that that's true (laughs) anymore. And I certainly don't think that people who, uh, and I wouldn't consider myself an insider, but I consider myself, you know, someone who watches it closely. I'm not sure that people who don't watch it closely have any sense that it's a fair arbiter 
um, of the rules in our or or the fights in our society. Do you think that's true? I completely agree with you, Tanya. I, I I think that the the difficulty that we are seeing now that I see in my classroom is that that most of my students think that it's all politics. That we know, uh, and this goes back to your earlier question about the confirmation hearings. We know who these people are, even when they hide it, and they are appointed because of their views and because they're going to be a reliable vote to overturn Roe or to, to uphold Roe, for example, or to be, you know, expansive with regard to gun rights and or restrictive with regard to gun rights or, or you know, re- expansive with regard to LGBTQ rights or, or restrictive with regard to those rights. Uh, and we know that. Now, but, but I'm like you. I, I, I liked, would like to think of the law as this area where persuasion still matters, where logic still matters, where analysis still matters, where my ability to persuade you and to listen to your point of view and then be persuaded by it uh, also is something that we, where we, is an area, that law is the area where that can occur. It hasn't always been that way, but there have been times when that's um, been true. You know, I think back uh, about um, Casey itself, right? So now Casey is 30 years old. But the plurality opinion in that in that case that was written that in a, in a way that that saved Roe that upheld the, the core holdings of Roe that was jointly authored by Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter, all justices who had been appointed by Republican presidents. You don't have those middle of the road people anymore. You know, and it's not just the the, the justices appointed by Republicans who moved to the center. There were there were justices appointed by by. Democratic presidents who moved to the center, Byron White was an example, who was appointed by John F. Kennedy, and then by the time he was um, uh, more senior in his career, he voted in the minority in Roe. You know, he wanted to to uphold abortion restrictions. So, so I think the, one of the things that identifies this current court and goes to your question is that for the first time uh, in in a, in a long time, a century or more, the the ideologies of the justices perfectly coincide with the ideologies of the appointing presidents. That wasn't the case for most of most of my lifetime, most of the 20th century. I mean, William Brennan, who was probably the second most liberal justice ever to be appointed by, by uh, second most liberal justice ever on the court, was a Republican appointee. Justice Blackman, so, who authored Roe v. Wade. Was a, was a Nixon appointee, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. My, my former boss, David Souter, was a, was appointed by um, uh, the first George Bush and was a reliable Republican all of his life. I think we've lost something when the court is is seen as so ideological that that no one who is before it, even um, in fact, either in fact or whose interests are are being decided by the court, which is, includes all of us. It's, I think it's a real loss when none of us really thinks that the decisions are products of of persuasion and logic rather than a product of ideological uh, pre-commitments. Still some hope, though. I mean, still some glimmers of hope. Was I right about the chief justice? He was the deciding vote in Obamacare, upholding Obamacare, and uh, right to marry. Am I right about that, Professor? He, was, he, was dis- he dissented in Obergefell. He, he, okay. He, he, okay. He, uh, he, although there was a, this statutory case from a couple years ago, Bostock, where Gorsuch and Roberts uh, came out in favor of LGBTQ rights, that's under Title VII as, as a statutory matter, but not under Obergefell under the constitutional framework. Thank you for the correction, Professor. It's been a long time since I was in a con law class. <laughs> um, You're always welcome. Uh, but uh, yeah, you make me want to go back. But 
So some, you know, I, I think that just as sometimes we're troubled by what seems to be a politicized judiciary, we have to also remember that there were a number of uh, judges appointed by former President Trump who weren't buying his election, stolen election uh, lie fairy tale. So the judiciary still does seem to be the last bastion. How, what needs to change? Um, are you one of those who believes that the Supreme Court should be reformed? Uh, should we add seats? Is that more politicization? Uh, what are your thoughts on making the system, I don't want to say uh, more fair, because some might say it's fair, but what would you do to sort of revitalize its credibility? It's a really important question. 16 out of the last 21 justices have been appointed by Republican presidents. That's uh, during an era wh where the Republican nominee for president has only won the popular vote once in 30 years, 2004. So the, the Supreme Court has become really skewed and sort of out of kilter with and out of step with with America. And I think America is is much more of a purple country than uh, than um, uh, and the Supreme Court is a pretty red Supreme Court. You know, it's a six to three conservative court. And it has been for 50 years. The last time the majority of the court was appointed by Democratic um, presidents was in the late 60s, 1969. So it's been you know, over 50 years since since um, the, the Democrats had a majority on the court, even though the Democrats have won the majority of the presidential elections in the last 30 years. I do think there's something that's wrong if it gets that fundamentally skewed. And I do think it's become more obvious since Donald the Donald Trump era. I mean, he was in office for four years, never won the popular vote, yet got three appointments to the court, uh, two of which were, um, were, in my view, stolen. The first uh, stolen because um, Mitch McConnell, Senator Leader, Mitch, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, refused to give uh, President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, uh, even a hearing in 2016 after Antonin um, Scalia passed away. And then because he said, well, the American people had to um, uh, had a right to, to weigh in. And then, you know, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in the final weeks of Donald Trump's administration, uh, Mitch McConnell changed the tune and rushed through the nomination, the appointment of, of Amy Coney Barrett. So, uh, and then in the middle of those, you had Brett, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, someone who was, who was um, sort of believably accused of some very serious uh, shortcomings uh, and uh, nevertheless received, uh, received a confirmation vote. So all this is to say that I think the, the court has suffered a lot of, uh, a lot of, erosion of its of its um, legitimacy and I what I, I you know I've written about this I, I think it should be um, reformed in certain ways I think the sort of the best answer is probably term limits you know the, the term limits for justice I think the idea that each justice should serve 18 years and have the, the term staggered so that each presidential um, winner uh, will have at least a one appointment uh, over the course of their 14 of their four years, I think is is a good idea. I can't remember how the the time works out. Maybe two appointments every four years. Uh, an another idea is to to add some uh, members to the court. 
you know, known as court packing. I think the difficulty with that is if if the Democrats uh, add members to the court, then the then the GOP will add members to the court when they get back in um, in the majority in the Senate and the, um, the House. So I think that's that's worrisome. I mean, there there are other sort of more outlandish ideas, some of which I which I've come up with, some of which I um, others have. But but I think one of the things that we should we should remember is that it's not just the Supreme Court that we care about, right? There are district courts that do the trials and do the, the hearings around the country. There are intermediate courts of appeals, uh, and and much of the work of the judiciary happens at at those levels, and those levels were populated um, by by Trump. I think about 25% of the federal judiciary was was appointed by Donald Trump by the time he was out of office. And that's going to take some time to, to wash out. So, for example, the judge in Florida that just struck down the, the, the mask rules for airplanes was, you know, this, this woman who was Put, uh, nominated by Donald Trump, pushed through uh, the Senate in the last weeks of the Trump administration, and now she issues a rule that is that applies to the to the to the entire nation. So the one person making a decision about uh, whether people are required to wear masks on airplanes or not. So it's not it's not a very democratic uh, thing, and it also may, it stinks of politics, right? You have this person appointed in the last weeks of the Trump administration, somebody that the ABA thought was not qualified to be a judge. She has ideological commitments that the Trump administration noticed. She's very young, and so she's put into place, and then two years later issues this this ruling that uh, that strikes down the mask mandate on all airplanes around the, around the country. That's, that's pretty aggressive uh, uh, judging. Well, speaking of judging and aggressive judging, let's go back to the draft opinion because the point that you made a bit ago was that if it does stand, um, we're not just talking about overturning Roe and Casey. We're talking about jeopardizing a series of fundamental rights that people have taken for granted. So uh, not to scare people, but let's just explain to people what the world may look like in a post-Roe environment. What's in jeopardy? What are the things, uh, Professor Greenfield, that People have been taken for granted, whether or not it's the right for uh, gay people to get married or the right to go get birth control without it being banned or having your, you know, some states say, we don't believe in that, so you can't do it. What are the things that are potentially in jeopardy if Roe falls? I think that there are, there are two things that are, that are probably worth focusing on. The first is I, I think it's worth just emphasizing the importance of the rights that are lost when Roe itself is overturned. Something I think something like 28 states are poised to to outlaw abortion or severely limit abortion, either at the the moment that Roe is overturned or quickly thereafter. A number of states have implemented these trigger trigger laws that that instantly become in play if Roe is overturned, and so you you know you have a situation in which. Uh, a, a huge number of people around the, the country uh, t- have taken advantage of this right, uh, sometimes be- because of dire need over the, the last 50 years. And some of these statutes that are, are ready to be put into place don't have exceptions for rape or incest. Um, I had a colleague of mine from another law school write um, a very poignant piece in the 
uh, I think in the New York Times or the Washington Post back in the fall, talking about how she was raped by her father and became pregnant by her father as a teenage girl. Uh, she, this, this woman um, is now a prominent law professor. She's a friend of mine. And she is an amazing human being. That, you know, that, that ripped my heart out to read that piece, to know that that, that woman, that dear, dear, brilliant person, had that occur to her as a teenage um, girl. And she would not be uh, able to be who she is right now but for the fact that she was able to go and get an abortion when her father raped her. And so, you know, the, many of these laws that are going to go back into, into place are going to force uh, women and other pregnant people to suffer horrible consequences. And we cannot let the court forget those those effects. I think it's just important for for everyone talking about this, you know, especially those of us who are law professors who get you know, too intellectual about it, to really recall and remember the, you know, the importance of this right to individual human beings. The other thing to say is that there are the, the way this this series of cases have built up over time. The fundamental rights jurisprudence based in the Fourteenth Amendment. The Fourteenth Amendment, um, you know, people talk about. Oh, there's not based in the text. Actually, there is a text, and, the, and there's a word liberty. The word liberty is the text. The framers of the Fourteenth Amendment, you know, in the, in the 1860s, did not define the word liberty, and left it for future generations to define over time. And so, little by little, as we have gained understanding of what it means to be a free human being, we've we've expanded what it means to uh, be free. And, and we've, we've developed a greater understanding of what liberty is. So it started, you know, 100 years ago saying, well, you have a liberty to decide um, whether to put your kids in private school or not. Uh, you have a liberty to decide to teach your kid in a foreign language rather than to, uh, in English. And then it ex- extended to uh, things such as, well, you know, a state that said, we're going to sterilize you if you're a habitual criminal. That's against um, the liberty clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. You, you know, you have you have a, a fundamental right to, to to bodily autonomy. Then the court said, well, you know, we're going to expand this because if you have a right to bodily autonomy, then you have a right to decide whether you're getting pregnant or not. So, state laws uh, like those that were at issue in Griswold v. Connecticut that said, you you know, you can't um, can't get contraceptives. Uh, for for birth control, then the court struck that down, saying you actually you have a fundamental right as a married couple to decide when you're going to get pregnant. Then the court expanded that to say, well, it's not just for married couples; it's for any person to decide whether they want to get pregnant and whether or not to become a parent. Because as we understand freedom, like the decision as to whether or not to become a parent has huge implications, you know, for 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 one's entire life. And and so the court goes from uh, you know, the school cases to the bodily autonomy cases to the contraception contraception cases, then to Roe, then to Casey saying, well, actually, if you have a right to contraception, you also have a right to decide whether to terminate a pregnancy. And each one of those jumps is a jump, right? It's, it's an expansion of rights. And, it's a, and it really turns on how the court defines the right, how the court sees it. Um, maybe it's expanding who can claim it. Then around that same time in the late 60s, early 70s, the court said, well, actually, you know, we're going to expand this beyond sort of procreation to marriage, to loving Virginia. The court says uh, these statutes that outlaw uh, white people um, marrying uh, people of color or people of color marrying white people are going to strike those anti-miscegenation laws down. So you have a fundamental right to 
to, to marriage. We're going to expand that too. So then you come to the, the new century, and the court says, well, actually, these cases, these, these laws that, that criminalize sexual behavior uh, between same-sex individuals, that's a violation of fundamental rights. That's their, that's their right to define themselves by consistent with, with dignity interest uh, by who they choose to have sex with. And then, you know, just a, a decade or so later, the court says, well, we're going to expand that right to include the right to, to, be, to marry whom you want, regardless of that person's sex. So the, all these cases are intertwined. They're based on each other. Now, Alito's draft opinion, uh, in certain pockets of the opinion, says, well, we're, no, we're only talking about abortion because there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a right of the fetus here. But in other parts of the opinion, Alito is, is quite clear that, that the cases that came after Roe sit on a different um, and, and much more tenuous foundation than the cases prior to Roe. So cases like Lawrence v. Texas that struck down Texas's sodomy statute, Cases like Obergefell that 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 struck down the the, the bans on marriage marriage equality, those laws are now I think much more at risk than they were even a, uh, a few months ago. Well, uh, we are certainly entering unusual times, uncertain times, and unusual times. And Professor Greenfield, I hope you will come back and help us unpack this because uh, I think. Things are only just getting started. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the conversation, Tanya. Really appreciate it.
Um, and so those particular individuals who actually witnessed or family members or who are give people five good mental health habits that they should start practicing. You know, in the physical... 